the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, earthquake weather produces a bumper crop of grain-fed igneous cuts leading to a bounty of stone soup this holiday season. Yum. Breaking Dawn with a space-based forklift. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have part one of a two-part interview with the great Tim Powers, multiple World Fantasy Award winner, great all-around storyteller, and author of the new Bain edition of Earthquake Weather, an amazing contemporary fantasy novel set in a very magically weird California. In other words, a regular California. Tim talks about that with us this time. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. We have excellent free fiction and nonfiction now available at the Bain.com website. We put up new content monthly, round about midnight on the 15th of every month, depending on the moon cycle and whether or not the author got their story in on time. Did I just say that? Our Sterling authors delivered the goods this month, and we have for your reading pleasure Axabras by Brad R. Torgerson. Growing up a dissenter on the backwater known as Planet Oswite, Elvin Axabras had his future cut out for him, joined the family profession of working in the planetary shipyards like his sire and grandsire before him, and he got a cold, hard existence on a planet far away from the center of the waywork, the ancient alien planetary superhighway, that has been humanity's home for generations. But Elvin Axabras dreams of more. Soon he'll find himself joining deep space operations and defense. As a color sergeant in the tactical ground army, he'll be at the sharp end of the stick against Star State Nautilan. It's a dangerous job, but Elvin Axabras knows God favors the bold and the free. A new story set in the universe of Brad's upcoming novel, A Star-Wheeled Sky, which will be out in December. Also at the Bain.com front page is the continuation of an interesting and engrossing ongoing nonfiction series by Tom Crapman. That one is called Principles of Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Carreraverse. And this is part two of that series. There'll be three parts. War in the Carreraverse, A Pillar of Fire by Night, Book 7, and Tom Crapman's hard-hitting Carreraverse series is out. Crapman's novels are distinguished by his attention to detail in all manners military. And now we continue this serialization of Tom's essay on the philosophy behind the organization of the armies of the Carreraverse. And Tom, who is a retired lieutenant colonel, also has a few things to say about general organization for warfare there, too, that are very germane. Principles for Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Carreraverse, Part 2, by Tom Crapman and Axabrast by Brad R. Torgerson, are available at Bain.com until December 15th, free for your reading enjoyment. After that, they remain free and perpetually available in the ebook collection Free Stories 2018 and Free Nonfiction 2018. Those are two different ebooks you can download at Bain eBooks forever. forever. 
This is part one of an interview with Tim Powers discussing earthquake weather. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Tim Powers to the podcast. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tony. Welcome back. Um, Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for his critically acclaimed novels Last Call and Declare. Hey, you were just up for a World Fantasy for the for the short story collection um, that w- you were a finalist in. But the Ellen Clages collection really was awfully good. I can't complain. Yeah. Well, you've been uh, you intermittently up for World Fantasies several times, right? That's the Yeah, actually over 40 years, quite a number of times. Uh they they distribute little Lovecraft lapel pins to nominees and I've got a little bag full of those. Oh, cool. You know, uh, I think who is it? It's Lois Lois Bujold who makes a little necklace of the of the Hugo uh, pins that she has. Declare that novel also received the International Horror Guild Award. Your novel, uh, Tim's novel on Stranger Tides, um, was sold to Disney, and it was part of the Pirates of the Caribbean installment. It was based on the magic system of that book, and and a lot of the. A lot of the feel of that book went into the movie as well, I think. Um, it's one of my, I love. Yeah. And they. Love uh, that novel. Yeah, they uh, bought that novel and it was sort of the basis of the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah. The novel being on Stranger Tides by Tim Powers. Um Tim's book, The Anubis Gates, won Gates won the uh, Philip K. Dick Award, and he won again with Dinner at Deviant's Palace. I really like that book as well. Um, well, I like them all, but <laughs> that's a a science fiction one that's kind of cool. Yeah. Bain recently published Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers, which was a World Fantasy Award finalist, um, and that has all up to now of the stories that Tim has written, although I'm sure that it will soon not be the complete Tim Powers. Um, Out Last Summer from Bain was a new edition of Expiration Date, which is part of the Fault Line trilogy. Um, And also Out Last Summer was an all-new novel from Tim, Alternate Routes. Um, And we're going to have a a sequel to that coming soon, um, as soon as you write it. (laughs) So... And um, can't wait for that. But now at Booksellers Everywhere is a, is a new Bane edition of Earthquake Weather, which is the finale of the Fault Line series and the sequel to Expiration Date and of the series opener, which was Last Call, which is a, it's a wonderful novel. Um, Tim grew up in Southern California, still revise, resides there with his wife, Serena, tucked up there next to the mountains. They keep L.A. St- the whole L.A. spread in. They they, they hold you. <laughs> Perhaps it's spread a little bit. The water, actually, it's maybe the limiting factor. <laughs> I don't know. You'd hope so. They keep building new houses by the square mile. Yeah, out there. What do they call it? Like Apple Valley and stuff? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that would be 
That would be north of us, yeah, through the Cajon Pass, yeah. So in earthquake weather, um, we are back in this this strange, might have almost been our reality of expiration date, which which uh, we did uh, talk about that last summer. And um, this that's the one that has Cootie, um, our young uh, young protagonist, um, Parnagas, I, I think is his last name. Um, he's a major character in this book, although he's he's not. I would say the main characters are uh, Cochran and uh, oh, uh, Plumtree, Janice Plumtree, yes. Um, but maybe explain from expiration date to earthquake weather. Cootie was being inhabited by the ghost of Thomas Edison, <laughs> and. Uh, how does the world work? Where are we um, as earthquake weather begins with with this the ghosts of L.A. and the and the, the and everything? Yes. Well, expiration date took place in 1992, and uh, earthquake weather takes place in 1994. Uh, specifically, starting with a big earthquake on January 17th, which. Uh, had a disastrous effects on Los Angeles, um, and January 17th happens to be the feast day of San Sulpice, which has a lot to do with the events of the book. Um, it develops that Scott Crane, who became the Fisher King of the West in Last Call in 1990, has not been uh, fulfilling all of his... Fisher King duties, which include uh, the requirement that he die every year in the winter and then come back to life again in the spring. But the dying part uh, was something he decided he could omit. Uh, It turns out he was wrong, and that's how come there was the earthquake and the Napa Valley vineyards uh, are being plagued with... uh, there's a phylloxera beetle, which eats grapevine roots uh, six feet below the ground. And uh, this is all true, by the way. There really was a plague of phylloxera in 1994. Um, and so it becomes necessary for him to be killed, which an outside person helpfully... Uh, and acts and then the crisis is to either somehow restore Crane to life or have some rival take that post and young Kuthumi from expiration date happens to have a non-healing wound in his side which is a Fisher King requisite and finds himself, like it or not, uh, as a candidate potentially for the Fisher King office. And whoever does it has to do it quick because you have to do it during the spring. And I suppose if nobody did it, if there was no Fisher King at all, there would be lots of earthquakes and all the crops would die and California would, I suppose become just a wasteland. Luckily, 
they managed to avoid that. The Fisher King is sort of the the connected in a spiritual or supernatural way with the land itself. Yeah, the Fisher King is a very mysterious figure who most clearly shows up in Welsh and generally Celtic mythology. He's always wounded in such a way that makes him sterile, uh, often impotent as well. And as long as he's sterile, the land is sterile. If he can be cured, the land will become uh, fertile again. And um, although he shows up most specifically in the sort of United Kingdom mythologies, he shows up everywhere, too. He shows up in uh, the uh, Thousand and One Nights, Arabic folklore, and he shows up in uh, Caribbean voodoo folklore. There's a character who is one eye, one arm, one leg, because the other half of him is the land. So it's uh, it's one of those archetypal figures that probably exists in that sort of Jungian deep water table in everybody's minds. Yeah, and he has a. I mean, it's it's clearly a uh, a, a dying god um, analogy as well, right? It's and the the wound can can sometimes be in his side, like Christ-like, or is it? generally the foot hurts. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the wound does vary, but uh, yeah, uh, generally it's in his side or crotch. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it flickers away if you try to pinpoint it into a sort of kaleidoscope of various folklore mythologies, and all you can get is kind of the few bits that constitute a kind of consistent outline. Fascinating figure, really. So Scott Crane sort of became the Fisher King of the Western U.S., I guess, um, in last call. Yeah, by uh, defeating his evil father, who had been the Fisher King, by killing the previous one, which had been Bugsy Siegel, the gangster who uh, pretty much invented Las Vegas. And then in expiration date, we had Cootie come along, and we started learning about how the ghosts work. Can you sort of lay that groundwork as well? Well, uh, the ghosts tend to... When a person dies, um, their actual self soul, what have you, moves on to whatever the afterlife might be. But in dying, the trauma of dying uh, causes a sort of animate cast-off snakeskin to be uh, emitted. And that can kind of coalesce and solidify and eventually pick up scraps of litter and bubble gum and bits of cigarette wrapper cellophane and uh, constitute an apparently real person. Of course, it's not very bright. It tends to just repeat 
bits from its read-only memory fragments. Um, but there are people in Los Angeles, well, probably everywhere, who catch those things, uh, put them in a vial, and mix them with nitrous oxide and inhale them. And if you do that, you get a quick flash, a kind of a 10-second rush of the ghost's lifetime. You kind of quickly, uh, all at once, absorb its high points of experiences. And this is a rush that people get addicted to, and so there's a thriving trade in uh, people who catch ghosts, bottle them, and sell them to these wealthy, degenerate sophisticates. And uh, there's all kinds of ways to catch them. For one thing, ghosts are idiotically fascinated with palindromes because a palindrome reads the same forward as backward, and a ghost will just sit there bouncing back and forth, reading it back and forth, until you come up and catch him and put him in a bottle. So if you write, uh, sit on a potato pan, Otis, on a wall and then come back a few nights later, you'll find several ghosts uh, simply confounded by the two-way nature of the graffiti, and you can catch them. And then you bottle them and sell them to rich addicts. And in expiration date, poor Cootie accidentally inhales the long-preserved ghost of Thomas Edison, and winds up sort of sharing his mind with Edison as he flees from a bunch of very hungry ghost dealers who would love to catch the Edison ghost because that would be a big prize, very expensive. Now, the way that the ghost mentality works and the the sort of discombobulation of their consciousness and the um, and the effect that they can have on those who who take them in a little too much and such allows for um, you I suspect <laughs> um, you enjoy waxing poetic and and uh, both poetic and uh, just having all sorts of verbal wordplay and um, it makes these novels delightful because of the uh, the weirdness of the ghost's, ghost's sort of associative way of talking, I would say. I mean, you want to comment on that? or yeah? That they are only partly aware of what's actually happening around them, but largely still uh, replaying in their idiot way um, significant events in their past, um, they can be useful or uh, a distraction and an annoyance. Um, it's real hard to question one. Interrogation is a mess. Um, but every now and then, uh, such as when Cootie is being helped along by the ghost of Thomas Edison, Every now and then, their special old knowledge can um, be real crucial in getting out of trouble. Um, and, yeah, the, some of the addicts who have consumed thousands of them 
find that the cumulative mass of uh, hijacked experiences they now include can uh, in, in altogether can kind of overwhelm their own real personalities and memories. Uh, so it's like many addictions, ultimately bad for you. Yeah, and we meet we meet somebody who's really oddly formed mental in the, in, mentally um, in um, earthquake weather in Janice Plumtree, who is um, a mess inside. Literally, she she's been sort of it. It's not that a ghost did this to her, um, but it, she's been sort of supernaturally fractured, right? When she was a young child, uh, her father uh, was executed by his weird supernatural cult members because he had failed to assume the Fisher Kinghood in 1990 when Scott Crane got it. And his cult members throw him off of a tall building. And uh, young seven-year-old Janice... Um, naively tries to catch him and save him. And he, the two of them wind up injured on the pavement, and uh, in the moments before he actually dies, he meets her eye and is able to throw his identity into her, into her mind. And this is such a shattering, literally, experience that it, it breaks her mind into a number of personalities, and she becomes a classic... Uh, case of multiple personality. I think she has 17 different personalities, and given whatever situation problem she may be facing at any time, she brings up the personality best able to deal with it. Uh, so when uh, the Janice personality is confronted with something intolerable, she retreats and, say, the Cody personality steps up to deal with the problem. And uh, this becomes a problem because it's unsustainable. Um, they think of themselves as uh, a bunch of kids on the bus while a crazy uh, criminal killer is... Um, threatening the driver and forcing them all to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, which, of course, is directly out of Dirty Harry, the movie. And uh, ultimately, she has to expel the personality of her murderous father and bring one personality permanently to the fore. And incorporate or retire all the other personalities, um, which yeah. is an ethical problem. I mean, psychiatrists who deal with actual multiple personality cases must sometimes think of personality A is the responsible, sane, dominant one. We need to get rid of personalities B and C. But in a way, that's the death penalty for B and C. Uh, to some extent, those are arguably actual people. Well, this uh, this situation in this world has made her particularly vulnerable to uh, 
to ghosts just passing through all the time. Her mind is sort of a train station, um, and she is uh, cursed with, but ultimately um, it turns out to be convenient, cursed with the ability to, yes, incorporate other personalities, incorporate ghosts, because uh, the boundary, the the defining wall of her mind, unlike the rest of us, has been has been broken. And so at one point it does turn out to be very a very good thing that she's able to physically incorporate ghosts that because of the situation need to uh need to do certain things. So we start out with uh Scott Crane getting killed uh, perhaps. Um and Janice has something to do with that. She's not exactly sure what she did. Right. Uh, She finds herself, after one of her common blackout periods, um, holding a spear in the neck of the dead body of Scott Crane. And she, uh, in the presence of one of Scott Crane's own children, and she's horrified by this, uh, doesn't know which of the personalities committed this murder, and knowing that this is a supernatural uh, situation, she resolves to do whatever is necessary to get Scott Crane restored back to life out of her yeah. sort of proxy guilt. And because she reports having committed a murder to the police and the police go to the murder scene and find nobody, no evidence of any murder. And because her explanation is crazy, she winds up uh, committed to a mental hospital where, of course, she meets um, our other protagonist, Scott Crane, who has psychological difficulties of his own. The scant, uh, scant Cochrane, yes. Right, yeah, Scant is his is the other one. nickname. Um, and she also meets our, our rather sinister uh, um, villain who, who's going to be pursuing and, try, and, and joining in with some other bad guys, Armin Trout. Um, what is this guy up to? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Dr. Armin Trout is a uh, psychiatrist who has traumas of his own in his past, and he has discovered that uh, dissociated borderline or multiple personality cases um, can be split, sort of, by exposure to... um, a very powerful, old, dangerous, suppressed set of tarot cards. And so his psychological therapy consists in breaking off the unhelpful, unhealthy personalities of his patients, which so far so good, except then he inhales, consumes those broken off personalities. And he has developed a taste for this. And so with uh, uh, Janice Plumtree as a patient, he thinks, wow, here's a gold mine. Here's a whole bunch of personalities I can break off 
and eat. But she, he finds that, um, unfortunately, one of the personalities in her head is not uh, an imaginary person, but is, in fact, the lively and ambitious uh, spirit of her father, which jumped into her mind in the moments before his body died. And so Armantrout finds himself wanting to continue to to eat ghosts, especially uh, Janice Plumtree's ghosts, but he it needs to get rid of the dangerous uh, personality of her father first, old Omar Salvoy, who was briefly a acolyte of uh, Ken Kesey back in the Merry prankster days. Yeah, we have. Um, there's so there's so many connections to to real stuff that uh, that you bring in here. With the, I mean, you. Yeah, a whole lot of it is real stuff. Um, all the events from Edison's life really did happen. Uh, the earthquake, uh, all the details of the Winchester house and Sarah Winchester's history. Um, I do find that using real history as a basis is convenient because it pretty much provides you with uh, the crucial events of the story. You don't have to make it up. It's all true. Yeah, and it just seems like, for you, um, L.A. resonates, the whole the basin and everything in that area, just, just sort of... I mean, many of us could drive through and see nothing but concrete, <laughs> but you, you see this amazing imaginary landscape that's just beautifully and weird and... and uh, yeah, L.A. is, if you look closely and pay attention. Um, there's uh, kind of a gloss of contemporary culture, but the old 1920s, 30s, 40s bubbles up here and there, and so there's almost little time warps you can walk into um, in the hills, in in funny little alleys, um, strange churches to gods you never heard of, uh, nightclubs that seem to exclusively cater to some group you'll never uh, get an explanation for. Uh, remote apartment buildings where everybody is members of some cause that you'll never figure out. Um, and there's parking lots where there used to be fabulous 1930s nightclubs. And the nightclubs are gone, but like there's three steps up to the parking lot, and those three steps are the original from the old nightclub. And you can kind of stand on those steps and close your eyes and try to picture what you would see if you opened your eyes and it was 1935 again. Um, yeah, it's, it's full of uh, sort of reflections, uh, hints, uh, vibrations here and there of its past. And, of course, the freeways constitute uh, 
a a really weird otherworldly uh setting um on the freeways you can wind up anywhere and they're distinguished from uh, normal streets the normal streets are called surface streets and you think okay if they're the surface the freeways must be the depths and uh <laughs> yeah. yeah to to scoot along at night especially to get lost on the LA freeways really it gives you a feeling of I I'm not in the real world exactly anymore. Exits come along every couple miles, but I'm not sure even those exits would take me to precisely the same Los Angeles I was in before I got on this freeway. Yeah. There's also some some San Francisco weirdness in in earthquake weather as well. <laughs> so, you seem to really like that place as well for a yeah, a, a lot of the book takes place at the uh, Sutro Bath ruins uh, on the sort of northwest coast of San Francisco there, where in 1900 there was this elaborate uh, Disneyland of um, bath houses, swimming pools, uh, and it all burned down. In fact, it burned down three times, uh, three different times. And now it's simply ruins. You can see the outlines of pools and bits of ruined architecture that are largely uh, consumed by descending, eroding hillsides. And to stand in the middle of it, you'd swear you were on some Mediterranean island. The ruins look way older than 1900. Um a very spooky place uh, to be. It's very spooky too, too, since it's only a like ten minute drive from downtown San Francisco. That was part one of an interview with Tim Powers discussing earthquake weather. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts, until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. 
Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Ashok scrambled for maneuvering room as one of them broke a table leg over his shoulder. It had far more reach than their little dress knives. He spied a lost dagger and scooped it up as the improvised club slammed into his calf. Grimacing, Ashok turned, dodged the descending club, and hit that warrior in the chest. Ashok pushed forward, stabbing repeatedly, piercing between the ribs, until he tripped over his pinned comrade and fell flat on his back. Two remain. A collision with the experienced veteran knocked him aside, both of their arms flying back and forth, freehand attempting to keep the other's blade away from the guts, but a faint and a quick twist of the wrist put a deep cut through the muscles of Ashok's abdomen. This one was extremely skilled, but Ashok had touched the heart, and the one Bidea called Jagdish was only a man. They clashed again. Skin opened, steel hit bone. Both parted with cuts. The winner dripped, the loser gushed, and the veteran had to stumble away, reaching for the deep laceration that had suddenly appeared in his bicep. Ashok used the distraction to lash out with a boot hard enough to snap bone. Jagdish fell as his broken leg collapsed beneath him. Ignoring his many wounds, Ashok started toward his false aunt. Blood was running down his back, leaking down his legs, and leaving a trail of bloody footprints in his wake. He should have collapsed, but it turned out that the heart of the mountain still beat even on behalf of a castless fraud. The floor was littered with the dead and crippled. Injured warriors were trying to keep pressure on their wounds. A few of the fops were crying. They'd not expected this sort of dance tonight. All this blood in this place seemed so very familiar. The remaining guests were watching in shocked disbelief. Bidea wore a mixture of disgust and fascination on her face. The giant bodyguard was patiently waiting his turn. One. Kill him, Sankamore. Though thick with muscle, there was nothing slow about this one. The giant came down the last few steps and leapt onto the dance floor, a thick blade in each hand. He was as big as Blunt Carno, and with the reach to match. They began circling each other. Sankamore used the two-blade stance of a westerner, one knife out to create distance, and the other down low at his side. That would be the one he'd kill with. For such a big man, his footwork was smooth, and he closed swiftly, lead blade flicking back and forth. Ashok stayed ahead of it, and sure enough, once committed, the other blade swept up to eviscerate him. Endless training had prepared him, though, and Ashok's unconscious reaction enabled him to move aside in time and counterattack. With one of his knives lost, and sliding across the bloody floor, the giant walked away with a deep cut on the back of his hand. Sankamore paused to admire his injury, then looked at Ashok and nodded in appreciation. Now, this was a proper duel. Ashok lunged forward, blade flashing. Then he retreated as Sankamore countered. 
Fast as the eye could follow, they went back and forth, short, brutal flicks of the wrist aimed at veins and arteries. Blood flew from new cuts or old. Asher couldn't even tell, but even he was beginning to weaken. Sankamore fought like a sea demon, and his fists were like iron. A vicious blow to the body lifted Ashok's feet from the ground. A rib broke, but he came back down, swinging the knife. Sankamore intercepted it, edge against edge, and the fine steel nicked and locked together. They turned, and the giant should have hurled him down, but with the heart of the mountain, they were equals in strength. Ashok was closer to the ground, however and he was able to use the leverage to push Sankamore back. The two of them wheeled about, striking each other, throwing elbows and knees that landed with bone-jarring force, both wanting to free their blades, but also not wanting to let the other escape. Ashok couldn't twist this one's joints. The bodyguard was too strong, and Ashok's free hand was too slick and wet. Sankamore hit the steps and tripped back, Ashok still on him. Some of the foolish guests didn't get out of the way in time, and they were smashed between Sankamore's bulk and the wall. Both he and Sankamore ignored the screaming. They were so close, Ashok could smell his breath, wine and cheese. Somehow, Sankamore's free hand had gotten hold of Ashok's knife hand, and Ashok's free hand had hold of the wrist that ended with Sankamore's blade. The giant smashed Ashok's nose with his forehead, and Ashok slammed a knee into the bodyguard's groin, but neither would let go. Sankamore's feet slid out from under him, and Ashok threw his weight down on the man. And then the giant's grip slipped. That heartbeat-long mistake was all it took. Hand-free, Ashok plunged the small knife into the top of his chest, just over the collarbone. Sankamore roared in his ear and thrashed about, the wounded hand landed on Ashok's face and shoved, twisting his neck so hard that it felt as if it would break. Veins standing out in his forehead, the giant tried to force Ashok back, freeing his blade, anything, but Ashok wouldn't budge. He got an angle and began stabbing, the little blade darting in and out, perforating the bodyguard's chest. Losing too much blood, Sunken Moor slowly sank down the wall, Fingers twisted into claws and tearing into Ashok's face, but his slide exposed his throat, and Ashok adjusted and stabbed him just beneath the ear. Eyes wide, the two combatants stared at each other for a time. Competence turned to confusion as the blood drained from Sankamore's brain, but still he struggled. The truth of the moment was enough to make Ashok forget his rage. This was a waste of a great warrior. But justice was not yet fulfilled, so Ashok twisted the knife and sent Sankamore to the endless nothing. Panting, Ashok stood up. He was dizzy. The sick feeling in his stomach and the cold in his limbs told him that even the heart had reached its limits. It was stopped now, or perish. The worker trapped beneath Sankenmore's body was crying for help. Other than that, the room was deafening in its silence. He limped away from the wall, turning to gaze at the shocked onlookers who were staring at him in wide-eyed disbelief. 
Medea. The woman he'd always believed to be his aunt had crossed the hall and was standing next to mighty Angruvadal. Your selfishness has ruined everything. What was her name? Ashak asked again, as blood dripped from his split lips. But Bidea was past listening. As her fraud had unraveled, so had her life, and all that remained for her was to rage. This sword made this house, and now it's destroyed it. It never should have chosen you. She leered at the crowd, a caricature of the wise leader they'd thought they'd had. What does it say about the men of this house, when none of you were worthy? You useless, preening warriors were so awful that it would rather choose an untouchable. This is your fault, too. She kicked one of the corpses. What was my name? Ashok whispered. My own son lacked the spine to even try. My warriors were too useless. Your failure gave us this castless abomination. This is no protector. Medea screamed as she went to the sword. I'm the one that protects us all. I should have done it myself. She wrapped her tiny hands around the handle and pulled it free. My lady, no, shouted one of the arbiters. Defiant, she held up Angruvadal for all to see. See? I should have done this to begin with. My house, my sword. I'm the one who made Vidal great. I'm the one who has kept you safe and made you all rich. I'm the one who... The sword found her unworthy. Bede's expression contorted in horror and revulsion as the muscles of her arm moved against her will. She tried to fight it, but the sword was very unforgiving. Black steel flashed as Bedea struck herself in the side of the head. The blade sliced so quickly and cleanly through the front of her skull that it was as if it wasn't even there. And Gruvedal spun from her fingers, struck the floor, and slid, coming to a rest at Ashok's feet. Faceless, Bedea stood there a moment until her brains slid out, and the Thakur of Great House Vidal collapsed in a heap. Ashok bent over and picked up his sword. It didn't shatter at his touch. The main hall was covered in blood and corpses. The guests were too stunned to speak. Some had begun to cry, whether for their dead Thakur or the bleak future of their house, he didn't know. More warriors had arrived, and they were lining the balcony, bows ready and arrows knocked. But they saw the black steel blade in his hand and hesitated. The law required a bearer to defend himself. He would have no choice. Enough decent men had already died to expose this corruption. Ashok found the highest ranking of the archers and gave a small shake of his head. That would not be wise. The commander agreed. The bows were lowered. Ashok picked out a guest wearing the silver insignia of a judge. You. The judge swallowed hard. Me? Yes, you. 
I wish to turn myself in as a violator. The law has been broken. I'm guilty of murder, treason, fraud, and I'm certain you'll think of many more crimes to add to the list. I am a castless by birth, but have been illegally bearing weapons and pretending to be a whole man. My responsibility... Ashok held up the sword, and the judge pulled away fearfully. Will not allow me to commit suicide. I require legal counsel and punishment. Where may I be imprisoned until judgment is pronounced? Um... That had been an unexpected question. There's Cold Stream Prison, just south of the Warrior District, outside the city gates. He gave a small bow. Thank you. Please tend to these wounded. None of them deserves to die. Ashok took one last look around the main hall of Great House Vidal. This was where the only life he'd ever known had begun. And this is where it had ended. Then he turned and limped from the room without looking back. The symbol of the Protector Order remained, abandoned in a puddle of blood. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a shot of the very best brands of those delightful liqueurs, death, time, and consciousness, plus a bar rag to wipe off the epiphenomenal foam of alternate reality beer, the chaser for those, which also sadly is made of the inchoate souls of those who never managed to make a basket in the great carnival game of life. Hey, those hoops are rigged. Plus, thanks and praise for Tim Powers, author of Earthquake Weather. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 